0: Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Grant Faulkner, author of All the Comfort Sin Can Provide.
1: I didn't think of sin in the religious sense. I'm I'm conscious of it being um, confused with that, although I think the religious sense of sin really hangs over, at least most Americans.
0: We'll be back with Grant Faulkner after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening the episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash Writers. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash First And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved. Time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash first draft writers. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Grant Faulkner, writer and executive director of National Novel Writing Month. He has published two books on writing, Brave the Page, and Pep Talks for Writers. He also co-authored a teen writing guide, published a collection of his 100-word stories, and edited a collection of 100-word stories. His new short story collection is called All the Comfort Sin Can Provide, which offers stories of dreamers, addicts, and lost souls. Some of his characters search for transcendence. Not all of them find it. The stories take place in Arizona, Iowa, New York City, and New Mexico. The territory his stories cover is both physical and spiritual, with notions of heaven and hell and sin and salvation swirling around as enticements and detractors for his characters. We began the discussion with me asking Grant Faulkner this question. So I was just going to ask you, you know, all the comforts sin can provide. I read in, in your notes in the back that it you wrote these stories over a very long period of time. So I wanted to ask you about, you know, putting a collection together with something that you wrote over so much time. And if, mm-hmm. if you feel like a different person than when you read that story, the first story, and, and what that's like. Like, is there something sort of autobiographical about it when you when you're covering such a long period of time?
1: That is an interesting question and one that I've thought about. Um, you know, I, I'm not the same person who wrote some of these stories because there's there's one story in the collection that was written. I don't know, 25 years ago or so, maybe a little bit more than that. And I'm very different. Um, yet I think the story holds up, you know? So I guess because the stories span that, that um, you know, length of time, uh, yeah, it's, it's almost like it's a collection of a past me and a present me. Um, I also think though that we're, we, we, we we kind of change as, as people with, I don't know, a certain kind of, uh, speed. Um, so I'm not even sure if I'm the person I was five years ago. So, uh, I thought it was interesting actually to collect stories from such a long period of time and kind of think about that. Um, all those changes that I've gone through and aesthetic changes as well, you know, not, not like it's drastic leaps in terms of aesthetics, but you know, I do have my eras of different preoccupations and obsessions.
0: And tell me about finding the title. All the comforts sin can provide was from a story that appears in there. I think it's the last story, and yeah. a friend suggested that might be a good title. And and once you you alighted on that, did you see a theme you didn't see before?
1: Absolutely, uh, Pamela Painter, my friend, who's a wonderful writer and wonderful teacher of writing she read my collection fissures for she was putting uh or writing a blurb for it and fissures is a collection of 100 100 word stories And she it was it was wonderful because she highlighted all sorts of things in the whole collection and made little comments here and there. And one of the comments she made was in the story uh, Morphine Drip. Mm -hmm. And she highlighted a phrase uh, which became the title. And she said, you know, make sure you use this as a title for a story or collection sometime. And when I saw that, it really, um, you know, lights went off. I was like, this is the perfect title for this uh, short story collection. And I, I liked it because it, it asks a question, um, what comfort can sin provide? And, and you know, uh, what, you know, how, how, <laughs> how does it deliver that comfort, I guess? And it really knitted these stories together and provided, uh, you know, a theme for that kind of stitching.
0: What do you think sin is?
1: Oh boy! I think I think we have to dedicate several podcasts or a whole podcast series to that. For me, in this book, I, I didn't think of sin in the religious sense. I'm I'm conscious of it being um, confused with that. Um, although I think the religious sense of sin really hangs over at least most Americans. I think of it a lot in terms of uh, Emerson's quote that you know what we call sin is in in others is an experiment for us. So I think that sin is is kind of a necessary pushing of the boundaries of life, a necessary test of ourselves, um, you know, that we need to explore things that are forbidden sometimes, and we need to live outside the conventions of, you know, what, what's, what's being enforced as normal society and sometimes that's perilous sometimes it's self-destructive sometimes it's destructive to others so there's all the whole spectrum of sin i guess and and what sin might be we might classify more as like experiment versus uh something you know that's that that is worth dealing with on a on a deeper level but i think within within this book it's really about that sense of experimentation and uh doing the forbidden
0: One of the things I noticed throughout many of your stories, particularly the longer stories, was Mm -hmm. this dichotomy between a sense of safety and a sense of danger. And it could have been Mm -hmm. that a character might have stood for safety, another character stood for danger. It could have been just um, one character's internal struggle between going towards danger or safety. I'm wondering if you if you notice that too, or if it sounds mm-hmm. right to you and, and what you would say about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, that sounds right. Just as you were asking that, I wondered if I write with that intention. And I, I think certainly in the, in the characters going toward danger, um, per the Emerson quote of, about experimentation, I think of these characters, a lot of my characters as sort of lunging desperately for something, um, or they're just teetering so they're they're living in a in a fragile state and that's definitely something i i like to write about a lot um characters in that state and i guess it's probably natural to to have some you know characters who are are contrasts to that within a story that's where i like to find my characters is right on that right on that edge
0: do you think it gives you something as a writer or does something for the character when they're sort of straddling these two places?
1: One of my favorite bits of writing advice came when I was, I don't know, in my early 20s and I read an interview with Sam Shepard and he said that he likes to write about characters within their contradiction. And I thought that that was just um, something so wonderful to ponder uh, about people in general, uh, but about characters as well as what is their contradiction and how do they straddle that. Uh, because I don't think we're ever one thing we're, we're we're, you know, multiplicities at once, and we have different possibilities. And so um, we're always deciding within those, you know, and oftentimes those possibilities are very contradictory. So yeah, I, I definitely am drawn to that straddling of, of two different lives, and they can be drastically opposed.
0: I think too that it lives within one character. So one of the stories I wanted to talk about is called The Names of All Things. And in this story, you have these two characters, Jim and Crystal, and he's 33 years old, and she's 17. And they met at her boarding school, which was for rich and troubled kids. And she was troubled, and he was a substitute teacher. And they seem to be polar opposites in a lot of ways. She grew up very wealthy in Southern California. Um, his Her dad is very overbearing. Well, maybe not overbearing considering her lifestyle choices, but very, you know, mm-hmm. wants to make sure she's safe and doing what she's supposed to do. His parents died in a car crash. He's from Oklahoma and went to church. And But they're both seeking a sort of freedom. And they end up... You know, there's there's some kind of substance abuse going on, definitely in Crystal's life. And, and he, I think, leans into that a little bit um, in the beginning when he ends up at her apartment overnight. And then they just take off and they're roaming through Arizona. And Jim kind of has a sense that nothing matters. And they're just kind of on the road. They they She's jailbait. So there that's that added tension there. And they're, they're just taking off. And she's very wild and free. She's she's a little bit feral and and has a sense of freedom that he doesn't have. And they're driving. And in the end, there's this rainstorm. And she gets out and she's in the rain. And he's worried because um, there's lightning and he doesn't want her to get hurt. And she's trying to beckon him to come out and, and feel the rain and just basically live. And... You have a line in there where it says he hoped disappearing was still possible in this world to be nothing again and again. So he's kind of searching for like obliteration in some way. In the end, he's trying to get her back in the car and then she gets in the car and he's out and she drives away and leaves him there. To me, the story was so much about this search for freedom, but the inability in some ways to find it, at least for him and that he's, he maybe is committed to more things than than she is.
1: Yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed your summary of the story. <laughs> I loved listening to it, and I um, also loved it for its accuracy. You know, I think with any story, a writer worries about it being misinterpreted, and I've often worried that about that story. Um, and, and yeah, you, you captured it uh, really wonderfully, and the title – um, there's a line that addresses the title in the story as well, uh, which is what, that he wanted to forget the names of all things, which is a way of even disappearing from, you know, before human history in a way, you know, part of being a human is to, to name things and label things and set up rules. And he and Crystal are trying to get away from those rules in many ways. And it begs the consequences. I think the story begs the consequences of what happens when we go beyond r- rules, and what we what what happens when we go beyond uh, naming things or forgetting the names of things. So yeah, I really wanted to uh, present these characters who, and especially the Southwest, also for me just speaks to that. I actually wrote that story and began it in. It would have been like mid 90s, I guess, mid to late 90s. I lived there for uh, two years in the mid 90s and uh, I hated living in Tucson. (laughs) It was a miserable place for me to live, but it was a wonderful place for the imagination because I think just the, the landscape and the ability to get lost in the landscape and the kind of people who live there for the purpose of getting lost, you know, begs all these questions and I was very intrigued by them. And in particular, I actually was a substitute teacher very briefly at one of these really, really weird high schools where essentially people like Crystal's dad, wealthy people from LA would pay to have their drug addicted kids uh, go to this very dubious high school. And uh, mainly for the benefit I think of uh, to get their kids out of their own care and to have them uh, receive regular drug testing. But it was a, it was a really weird place in the sense that it it had all these uh very regimented strict rules and yet they gave the kids a, a lot of freedom at the same time they were just these spoiled rich kids kind of roaming the world and it was easy for them to essentially escape back into the life that they were sent there to get away from so um yeah so the, that kind of lawlessness i guess of the west um came into play as well in my imagination um and uh, the main character. He did grow up in the Midwest, in Omaha, and he grew up in a, in a more strictly Lutheran family. And so that's contrasted to um, this, this search for freedom in that, um, that he, was, he was searching to get away from that when he lived in Omaha. I mean, there's a section where I talk about his, his road trips, his daily road trips to get, a, to get away from things or just to kind of like go elsewhere. And uh, his own parents, like religion, doesn't deliver the answers as well. So I think it is like this, um, for me, an interesting topic to, to search for, you know, how do we live between those two poles?
0: One of the things that you read about through, through his perspective is he was raised in the church and his search for obliteration, I think, led him to this sort of dangerous journey with a 17 year old girl and I think he's taking stock of who he is in life and he says no one is just one thing because being who you're not supposed to be is part of being who you are because everyone is this and that and something else besides and I did see some of that also throughout this whole collection of not necessarily pigeonholing characters or characters who maybe defied their their general way of being. And I just wanted to ask you about that line and, you know, putting it into his mouth and and your thoughts about that.
1: Yeah, it's it, it's it is one of my favorite lines in the book, and I think it is as you said, like a line that sums up a lot of the the themes or the the other characters as well in some ways. And he says that is his I think his mother is making some disparaging remarks. I mean, this is this is also you know back in the '90s before yoga became this you know kind of mainstream force, and she's ridiculing people who <laughs> older people who are um, Older people her age who are doing these sort of new things, and uh, he's reacting against that because as, as one progresses through life, you take on these new identities, and taking on new identities is actually just that's what we're supposed to do in many ways. That's that defines life, um, but it also defines life in a way that we're always confronting ourselves and our own changes, our own changes, and and you know who we are. Are we this one entity, or are we an entity who can? essentially move from a Lutheran church to a yoga class. <laughs> um, and, and he's definitely of the latter.
0: Yeah. I think he, he comes from this stoic, um, this religious background that has, has penned him in, in some way, and he's trying to get out of it. But it's interesting because he, he can't when crystals kind of being her free self and, and dancing in the rain and, and, feeling all the feels of being out there and being free and stupid and 17 and really not having much to worry about because her parents have money and there's always a backup for her, which there isn't for him. But in a way, he ends up being just like her father because he's disciplining her, like get back in the car, do this, do that.
1: Yeah, you're right. Um, he's definitely aware of the dangers of the world that one shouldn't be dancing, Um under, underneath a you know, thunderstorm where there's uh, lightning. So uh, he does play that role. And I do think that, I mean, when I mentioned earlier, when you're asking me if uh, what sin is, and I do think um, if you've ever grown up believing in God, God is never an absence in your life. Uh, God is always watching you, no matter how how much of an atheist you are, and and I see this character in that light. Like he he's left the church. He's um, you know in in rebellion against his upbringing in many ways, uh, but he's still also living within it. And so his sense of sin does come from the church and and from like a God's judgmental eyes, and so he is very attuned to consequences in a way that Crystal isn't, because I think she is more. Um, You know totally godless in a way uh she you know she was i think um you know essentially a spoiled child from the beginning or a child raised within um you know more kind of pure commercial pursuits or um seeking pleasure for self-fulfillment um or you know whatever just just the adornments of all the all the things like you find in a shopping mall i guess um I, i think she's kind of lacking um parental support or parental guidance in the sense of like having a a more deep and spiritual life. That's not to, not to say that she's not this, uh, you know, intelligent, wonderfully seeking creature. I don't, I don't want to diminish her in any way. I just think she has a different uh, viewpoint than Jim does.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify, whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the, we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com specialoffer special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You'd mentioned that if you grew up believing in God, it's never like you're never without that. Is that how you grew up?
1: I didn't grow up anywhere with with uh, the kind of severe Christianity that Jim did. I was uh, raised a Christian, as most people in my uh, all people <laughs> in my community, as far as I know. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely was, you know, uh, went to Sunday school when I was a kid. But my kid, my it was, my parents were more sort of agnostic, like the kind of. Non-believers who went to—I mean, they didn't actually go to church. They took us to church, so Sunday school was a type of uh, parenting, I think. Um, But I didn't go after I I was—I think—thirteen or fourteen. But I did think about uh, God a lot when I was a kid and religion. I mean, I was a was a pretty spiritually minded kid, and um, you know, it it is it is interesting. I mean, I I don't think about uh, there being like a God, but but I. But I, you know, I, I do think that holds true that once you've believed in God, and because I think you, we, we internalize a God so deeply, and especially if you've grown up with these strict senses of right and wrong, they're hard to uh, truly get away from, I think there's somewhere within you and you have to reckon with them. And I guess that gets back to the Sam Shepard quote of living within a contradiction. And some of the contradictory forces that we find in ourselves aren't really of our choosing, they're sort of a residue from from past selves.
0: I think too, sometimes you manifest what you believe in. For Crystal, she was all about beauty. Like she wanted to be beautiful, she wanted things around her to be beautiful. She, um, it, it, you say in there, she had a way of speaking in which everything she said suddenly had the potential to come true simply because she said it. I mean, she is a spoiled girl. Um, but she, she kind of does end up, you know, she ends up with the car and she drives away and leaves him, uh, at the church. <laughs> um, and, and she does kind of get what she wants.
1: Yeah. I think she's more capable of getting what she wants than he is. I think, uh, she's more clear in her direction. She's less questioning about it. Um, she's more, um, when she knows what she wants, she goes for it where I think he's a creature of indecision and confusion. And, uh, I see her as being, I mean, when you say that she, that's nice that you say that she is about, um, she quests for beauty. And I do think that's who she is. I mean, in many ways, I think Crystal will be fine in the world because she's very self determined and very clear and she does like things to be beautiful. That's what she lives for. And she's not going to compromise that in any way.
0: You know, another story that had this sort of, I don't know, maybe back and forth and idea of. Living between safety and danger is the first story, Gerard and Celeste, Mm -hmm. which is, um, it's told in different points of view. Gerard is married and having an affair with Celeste and her father died. And he kind of has this safe life because he can go home to his wife, even though he's doing something very dangerous. Um, at this point, at least his wife has no idea. And, you know, she is more dangerous. She's roaming, Um, and so he is, he is straddling these two places and in the, in the pretty much kind of the beginning, she, she dumps him. I think she loves him, but she's too afraid of what might happen. And so she just lets it all go and they both end up thinking about each other so much, but their, their relationship is in this space where it can't come true.
1: Yeah, definitely. That story has many, um, it has interesting roots, put it that way. It was it was born from Roland Barthes' A Lover's Discourse, which is one of my favorite books. Um, and Roland Barthes actually wrote that book because he. it, it was born out of letters that he wrote to um, a lover that wouldn't return. I mean, they were lovers for a while and then they broke up and his lover got married so it was a love denied and so i think a lover's discourse is really not about it's ostensibly written about love but it's really written about rejection and so i started writing these this was back when i was writing a lot of hundred word stories and uh, my collection fissures has about 20 or 25 stories about gerard and celeste and they seem to have resonated with the people who read that book or i got a lot of comments about them and i decided to i guess i've been kind of gradually building them into different forms but i took a lot of the stories both that were included in the book and weren't included in the book and and put them together in a type of collage and that's why this story is 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 elliptical in 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 texture and feel and um yeah, and since actually, I've I've taken those two characters and 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 written a novel about them uh, uh, through Gerard's letters to Celeste that are you know possibly never sent. Um, that's a question in the novel, but um, yeah, it's it's definitely um, follows the trajectory of forbidden love, but obsessive love, and that type of love that's forbidden, of course, like uh, creates uh, it's it creates obsession, right?
0: You write in there, true lovers are expert in constructing penitentiaries, she thought. She'd hammer a nail into his hands for eternity. And so you have this idea that she could capture him somehow. Mm -hmm. And, And she didn't because she broke things off. But she did because they both are sort of gripped by thoughts of each other. I think for the rest of their lives. So they're free, but they're, they're even less free than if they were together.
1: I think so. I think that that is part of that obsessive love is, is catching the other, the lover, you know, and she has that satisfaction I think, or that's what she's aiming for. They're both aiming for that actually uh, is to somehow live within the other's mind and that comes out more actually in the novel that i wrote that's why the character gerard is writing these letters it's almost it's a form of expression it's a form of um of ownership though and possession at the same time um yeah so it's it's, it's a fascinating um subject to me i guess about how how one can almost capture the intensity of an experience and the intensity of another through their absence better than you can through their presence because the presence takes on many different forms, you know, and, and when we know people that that love might deepen and become more satisfying in many ways, but it also becomes, you know, we're not kind of questing for it or as obsessed about it as we are when it's, when it's not available.
0: There were, a few things that came up in this story that I noticed were either tropes or ideas that appeared throughout your collection, and that might have been unconscious on your part. I don't know. One of them was kind of this idea of ghosts. You have a line in there that says ghosts appear when words fail. But I found through several of the story, you either use the word "ghosts" or, or there was that idea of it. And I'm wondering if, if you noticed that too, or, or what you would say about that.
1: Hmm, That's interesting. I mean, I did think consciously of ghosts in terms of this story and this, this quote didn't, um, didn't play into the inspiration or the creation of the story, but David, I think it's David Foster Wallace said, every love story is a ghost story. Um, so I was, I was thinking about these characters being very literally haunted by the ghost of their love and how ghosts have this very weird, they're very weird because they have no access to a world, right? Like they're in between, they're in limbo. They're not part of the real world, but they can sit and observe it. Um, And they're not part of the the dead world because they're still kind of waiting, I guess, to go on to whatever's next. Um, And I think that that's what happens um, in this type of love. But I didn't uh, think about that in any conscious way in terms of the rest of the collection. Although, you know, as we're talking, I can see how that can play into uh, many of the the themes, you know, and even just our conversation about God being a presence or an absence. I mean, that's a type of obsessive love itself.
0: The other thing in, in Gerard and Celeste that I noticed came up a lot had to do with the power of language she in there she said to him she said goodbye was just a word and several times she was just kind of either directly saying or intimating that you know language it's just words like that that in some way that they're separated from their meaning or can be or the way that that they that language fails and i noticed this idea in several of your stories
1: hmm yeah gosh i would have to think about that um more um it's it's definitely not a conscious theme um yeah i mean our 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 characters especially i think in the care in in that story with gerard and celeste so much of of love um especially when that love fails the words also seemed to become more flimsy, right? Like like even saying, I love you. Well, what does I love you mean if you're not going to be with each other, if you're not willing to sac- make your sex sac- you know? In, in Gerard's case, he wouldn't leave his family. He wouldn't leave his wife. Um, if he like wanted to, I think the, the line that you read about goodbye, he wants to see her to say goodbye. And mm-hmm. she's just like, goodbye is just a word. Why do we even need to say goodbye? You know, she's uh, hurt by him, but she's also questioning just the words that they've formed their relationship with and there's always this chasm between our words and our lived experience and I think as a writer that's also our biggest challenge right is how do we use these little textual things and string them together to somehow represent the life we live and it's just the most challenging thing and we can never quite do it it's it's always a, a quest for something that can't happen and I think that becomes more um Sort of piquant and uh, and um, arresting and disturbing when we're dealing with love and language fails us and I think and and that's part of the reason I wrote that story in that form with a lot of gaps and very elliptically is I think it, it the the form itself speaks to how much can we understand another how much can we be with another um, that that our that our language is always an attempt to be with another but but we're also largely alone you know, in those words, trying to articulate what happened.
0: You know, you can tell from some of these stories, I only know this because you wrote this in the back, but that places like Iowa, California, and Arizona fit largely in these stories and also in your life. And Mr. American takes place in Iowa. The main character is Will, who's, it's his one anniversary of sobriety. And, um, you write, it had been such a long time since he'd sinned, but he needed to sin to help him understand his life, he told himself. So what he is doing is he's married and has kids, but he meets this um, Laotian woman at the Walmart named Lei. Is that how you pronounce
1: mm-hmm.
0: her name? Mm-hmm. Or I'm sorry, they met at a bar. She works at a Walmart. And she's kind of lives with more abandon. She's maybe more like the character Crystal. And they end up having this one night stand and then he can't really stop thinking about her. So he finds her again and basically she's more resistant the second time. She's like, what are you doing here? She's just trying to live her life and work at Walmart. And at the same time, he has, um, he has inherited this lumber business and he has many two loans out on it and he's going down and his his wife at home doesn't know like the peril that they're in financially. And so I think hanging out with Leigh is, is a a relief for him because she doesn't necessarily expect what a wife would expect. But then he, he picks her up and they go and they have sex and he offers her $50 afterwards because she's mad at him basically for using her in the way that she is. And he ends up um, kicking her out of the car and she's found dead and he gets away with it. It's like, he's a lucky man. He gets away with it. No one knows that he did this. So I was just wondering about the impetus for this story and what you wanted to include in there.
1: Yeah. Thanks for mentioning this, because when you mentioned if I had any uh, favorite stories I wanted to touch on, this would have been one of them definitely. Um, And this story comes um when I was growing up in Iowa and I grew up in this town called Oskaloosa, which is kind of referred to in this story as New London, um, I always thought it was weird that there are all these places in the Midwest or in the United States in general called, you know, Paris or Oslo or <laughs> New London. Um, I think it's a very kind of odd aspiration to make a little town in Iowa into London. But um, yeah, so when I was growing up, I think I was about 11 or 12 and suddenly... <laughs> several laotian families moved to town and i've since researched like what was behind that because no one really explained what was happening or why these laotian families were there and one of my best friends when i was in fifth grade was this boy named fong and he spoke no english and i think these schools and the community no one was equipped to you know truly welcome them or you know teach these kids how to you know speak english but um, it's an interesting story because uh, the Thai Dom people, um, which is a tribe uh, that, that was um, caught in between, I guess, wars in, in Southeast Asia. And so they were, I think they were initially in Laos and then went to uh, Vietnam and then Thailand. But anyway, there are about 3,000 people in this tribe. And they needed to find a home. And they wrote to 30 governors in the United States, and only one governor responded with any sort of help, and it was the Iowa governor. And so nearly all of the Tidon people came to Iowa, and they were sort of uh, scattered throughout the state in little towns like Oskaloosa. And Oskaloosa is a town of about 10,000 people. And so I've always been fascinated by their. Lives, and I've known very little about their lives, even though they they were in this community I grew up in, and 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 the other thing is, as a contrasting force, is is the character Will, and what I experienced a lot in these in in, in my hometown was that there 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 were there was this heritage of these these rich families, they weren't rich in any big sense, but they were rich within the context of a small town. And Will comes from a family like that. So he's very privileged and very privileged in terms of this small town. And he has this lumberyard that's failing. You know, everything's the the, the the legacy that he inherited is kind of it's expired. You know, there, there are home depots that are encroaching on the, the lumber yard's business nearby. And so he's failing as a person, but he's kind of clinging to that that former life that's expected of him and that his parents expect of him, and success. But he's you know floundering, and so I thought it was. And one thing about characters like him in small towns is that they can live without consequence in many ways. It's a, it's amazing how many people get off the hook just because of their their class, their privilege, who their parents are. And so he can, I think go through his daily actions with a sense of, um, that nothing's going to happen to him. And so that's why I, I, that's largely what this story is about is about him taking what he needs or what he wants to give himself pleasure or meaning. And in this case, it happens to be lay. Um, and that's why he, um, he, he actually, I mean, in the story, since you recounted it all, um, he pushes her out of the car without thinking, how she'll get back, you know. She's they're they're out on a country road, and I'm imagining it just a mile or two from town, um, and and there's not snow. It hasn't got, like a snowstorm hasn't happened yet. It's not technically cold enough for someone to to freeze to death but that's what happens to her. And he, he doesn't think that like she doesn't have her coat, that she's on a country road, that she doesn't have a cell phone, that she's going to be afraid to go to, to knock on a farmer's door. Um, you know, that she has a, a whole different type of legacy that she's dealing with. Um, and so I'm imagining her having experienced so much um, hatred and ostracization and being othered in her life. She doesn't feel like she belongs there at all, but she finds herself in this community and she and he so he doesn't even think about it he drives off and leaves her there so she ends up in this you know uh, ditch like she did die of she froze to death and snow covered her that night and snow stayed there for for a, a period of the winter and and so when she's found later it's it's a question of i mean one he didn't really think about what would happen to her so he's living without consequence and you know in a small town like this i th- there, no one's investigating it. No one's, no one's being accountable to it. So I do have a vision for this story actually going beyond just the story into into a a longer form to, to explore different sides of what happens when, you know, after she's found.
0: And and you also wrote that he has thoughts of being a better man, but he doesn't really have to be a better man because the easy way, I mean, who knows what's going to happen with his loans, but he seems to just skirt by being kind of not a good guy.
1: Yeah, I think I think that that's his actually his problem and his challenge in life is that he's always been able to take the easy way out and I think, you know, living that type of you know, I mean, I do think of him and his family as being a type of royalty within the context of this small town and, you know, this exists in many different forms uh, throughout, you know, the United States and the world, of course. But he he knows he's going to be fine, but that knowledge of him, that he can get out and 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 not deal with consequences is also damning because it doesn't push him to be a better person and the lumberyard is going to fail as a result his his whole life with his family is also uh, likely to fail i think because he doesn't really have the metal or the strength to be a strong person and to hold it all together and that's also why i named him will is that he is lacking will so there's an irony to his name and that will you know i mean in, in a sense is like what you know maybe made his family successful way back generations ago but it's it's dissipated and it's gone
0: you're interested in hundred word stories and and this collection goes between kind of longer stories and then are cut with these short hundred word stories so what interests you about the hundred word story
1: i like it because they are these little snapshots of life and i think writing through the smaller shorter forms it gives you access to a different type of story it doesn't have to be following the trajectory of a plot and suspense in quite the same way and i also like you know when we were talking earlier about that chasm between um language and understanding another's language and being able to connect through words hundred word stories are, are written or all these all the short form stories microfiction and flash fiction are written more with the you know you have to be attuned to what's left out what's unsaid and so i like the way that the stories um you know it's it's essentially hemingway's iceberg principle where he describes writing a short story as um similar to an iceberg and that like an iceberg has only the top 10 percent showing above the water and the the the, the other 90 percent's invisible and that's the way he is metaphor for a for a short story. And I think with with hundred word stories, it's really like one percent of the Asperger's showing. So you're just showing the tip of the story, but you're you're really in more of a collaboration with the reader because the reader has to imagine what's been left out, and interpret it. Uh, so I I like it for that reason uh, especially. But I also think you know the the longer that I've been writing in the short form, the more it informs my long form. Um, longer, it like informs novels as well. I don't aspire to write with all that kind of connective tissue or explanation that goes into most novels. So it's 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 really been interesting for me to think about how a more fragmentary writing and reading experience um, that's that that expresses things more um, accurately for me.
0: I don't know if you would call it an organization, a website called a hundred word story. <laughs>
1: yeah what is that <laughs> um, it's not an organization uh, it's a few uh, friends uh, and I we, we run this little magazine called hundred-word story and every story is a hundred words and we've been doing it for uh, ten years now actually ten years to the day almost and yeah and we've published a book a collection of hundred word stories um, uh, of all the best ones that we've published so it's been an interesting kind of tiny movement and the whole flash fiction uh, world, I mean, uh, it's amazing. When I started 100 Word Story, there were just a handful of, of flash fiction journals. And, and when you wrote short stuff, you, you really were, as a writer, really, ch- it's still challenging to publish it. A lot of uh, journals prefer to publish something longer. Uh, but there are only a handful of of flash fiction journals, and now there's so many of them and so many people writing it that it's been really interesting to be part of um, what I see as a rising movement in writing. I think it's going to be interesting to see where it goes.
0: Well, it definitely captures people's attention span these days.
1: Yeah, I think it captures people's attention span, but I think it's it's something more than that, too. I think it's it's a... I think people like it for the possibilities of the storytelling form itself. And that's what it does for me is it just provides me a different way into a story and into a character. And it makes like when I first discovered the form and, and I discovered it through a writer who was writing, he wrote hundred um, word stories as a, and he wrote a bunch of them as a way to write a memoir. And I thought it was such an interesting way to write a memoir because he could write about all these smaller moments of his life. And I think, um, sometimes the most meaningful things in our life aren't the big things that happen but it is the small things that we couldn't maybe really recount somebody over a beer but they're really meaningful to us and so i think that the smaller form really invites in that type of uh of storytelling that i find in some ways more interesting it's it's similar to if you've ever read natalie soro her her tropisms and she has this concept that you know, tropisms is a biological world word and it's it's associated with plants and the, the word refers to, you know, when 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 there's a stimulus put on a plant, it's like small, but sometimes unnoticeable noticeable way that it that it changes. And so I've always been intrigued by that as a, as a metaphor for storytelling. And I actually did a, a, an interview or talked to Lydia Yaknevich about it once. And she was really taken by Natalie Soros as well. And she, she, she translated tropisms to mean intensities, which I thought was great, is just to write with a sense of small intensities.
0: And that's at 100wordstory.org. Yeah. Your yeah, organization.
1: My organization. Yeah, <laughs> every once in a while, I have people write in, especially young college students, you know, and they, 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 uh, they treat us like an official organization and ask us for, you know, in, in various internships and things like that. And uh, we don't can't do that.
0: I also wanted to ask you about your other day job, um, working for Nano the National Novel Writer Writing Month. It seems like something that has grown a lot, you know, year by year. I don't know how long it's been around, but what is it like working there? And yeah, what do you do all day?
1: <laughs> I do a lot. We are an official organization. We have 10 staff people and it is a huge, huge event, but it's more than an event. You know, we we became known for National Novel Writing Month, which happens in November. And it's the challenge to write a novel as, you know, interpreted as 50,000 words in 30 days. And it's it's really an invitation for people to make creativity a priority in their lives and so many people want to write a novel someday. So this is about making that happen today. Like don't wait until, uh, someday in the future to, 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 uh, to live your creative dreams because the, the it probably won't happen if you keep putting it off. So that's, that's sort of the premise of things, but we have 300,000 people who participate every year in November. We have a, a program, the young writers program where hundred thousand kids and teens Participate and we provide uh, free uh, novel writing resources and workbooks to about 10,000 classrooms. And then we've, you know, as we've grown over the years, uh, I can't remember if I mentioned this, but we've been around for 20 plus years. We um, now support year round programming. So we have both different events and writing challenges and, you know, different things for people to do throughout the year. So it's all about supporting and empowering people to realize their creative potential.
0: What kind of stories have you heard from people who have done it?
1: It's been interesting. It's been interesting to me as a writer. I mean, one uh, hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people. I don't know. We don't keep track of it, but but we've had so many successful novelists and best selling novelists. Elizabeth Acevedo uh, has written with us, Aaron Morgenstern, Alexander Chi. So a lot of people have uh, either tried it or come back year over year. We have some writers who uh, they always develop their first draft of a novel with an, either in NaNoWriMo or using that kind of method of just getting it out and writing it and not worrying if it's, you know, fine writing or crappy writing, but just that the premise of a rough draft is to explore your story and get the words on the page so that you can edit them later so we, we you know we have a, a whole whole bunch of people who've been very successful with it in terms of publishing but we also have a lot of people and this is what's been really heartening for me is people who just like to get together with their friends and write and so we have a thousand volunteers across the country who organize in-person writing gatherings uh Initially, they started doing it just in October and November for National Novel Writing Month, but now they increasingly do it throughout the years. And they, you know, they get together and they build these writing communities, which are are really important, especially in small little places like where I grew up. And they write together and they, you know, some of them, of course, like want to get published, but some of them just like want to write with their friends and be creative with their friends. So. I'm always intrigued by people who think the value of writing a novel is all about whether you get paid for it or whether you get fame and fortune and, you know, publishing credit for it, because I think writing can be just like knitting is for some, it can be an activity that's just creative, fulfilling, creatively, fulfilling unto itself. And I think that's the beauty of it. In the end is that most writers, we have to write for that purpose, just the purpose of writing itself. You know, the, the longer I've, I've been a writer, uh, when I first became a writer, I, I wanted to, you know, write great novels, but I, I don't think of it in those terms so much anymore. I mean, what, what gives me satisfaction as a writer isn't necessarily being published. It's, it's the act of writing itself. And I think that that's the gift of it and the reward. And, you know, when I, I write when I get up in the morning and uh, it's the most peaceful moment of my day when I'm most fully myself and so for anybody out there who is, uh, you know, questioning themselves as a writer or questioning their ability to get published or, or whatever, I, th- I think we need to return to that sense of like why we started writing in the first place. And when I first started writing as a, as a kid, I wasn't writing for any kind of publishing glory, I was writing just for the joy of the story. And I think that that's where, in the end, it's all it's all very meaningful.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: yeah i um brought teju cole's open city which i think was published about 10 years ago and the reason i'm reading this is because most writing workshops one of the rules of writing is to to never have your main character just start walking around town immersed in his or her thoughts (laughs) you're supposed to uh, identify conflict and introduce that conflict in the first page or two and I have found that to be really misguided writing advice I'm really attracted to characters who just walk around town thinking and that's essentially what this book Open City is and I think it's it's fascinating because that's what it is it's about Um, I'll call him a flaneur. Uh, it's definitely falls in that tradition, but it's, but it, but it's, 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 hard to pull that off on the page, I guess. And I think Teju Cole does it really brilliantly. So here goes. And so when I began to go on evening walks last fall, I found Morningside Heights, an easy place from which to set out into the city, the path that drops down from the cathedral of St. John, the divine and crosses Morningside park is only 15 minutes from central park. In the other direction, going west, it is some 10 minutes to Sakura Park, and walking northward from there brings you toward Harlem, along the Hudson, through traffic. though traffic makes the river on the other side of the trees inaudible. These walks, a counterpoint to my busy days at the hospital, steadily lengthened, taking me further and further afield each time, so that I often found myself at quite a distance from home late at night and was compelled to return home by subway. In this way, at the beginning of the final year of my psychiatry fellowship, New York City worked itself into my life at walking pace. Not long before this aimless wandering began, I had fallen into the habit of watching bird migrations from my apartment. And I wonder now if the two are connected. On the days when I was home early enough from the hospital, I used to look out the window like someone taking auspices, hoping to see the miracle of natural immigration. Each time I caught sight of geese swooping in formation across the sky, I wondered how our life below might look from their perspective and imagined that were they ever to indulge in such speculation, the high rises might seem to them like fires massed in a grove. Often as I searched the sky, all I saw was rain or the faint contrail of an airplane bisecting the window. And I doubted in some part of myself whether these birds with their dark wings and throats, their pale bodies and tireless little hearts really did exist. So amazed was I by them that I couldn't trust my memory when they weren't there. And so this character is also, I should have noted, an immigrant to New York City. So the the book has a lot to do with that sense of human movement and, and how immigrants uh, see the world in there and they're traipsing about.
0: Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft.
1: Yeah, I think the, the, uh, for me, the beginnings of a story and the end of a story, uh, just uh, I endlessly tinker with them. So this is from Mr. American, which fortunately you did a great job summarizing earlier. Um, But I'll read, this is just the beginning. Mr. American, we'll look through the gap in the soiled floral drapes, forgetting the girl and her drunken ribaldry for a moment. The hotel lay at the edge of New London in a no man's land between farmland and the highway heading to Des Moines. A slanted barn lay sketched on a hill covered with a scrim of snow. Cows ate the scrubs of corn stalks in a field nearby and a solitary tree speckled with the last frazzled leaves of autumn clawed at the sky. The afternoon sunlight was just beginning to fade into the slate gray of a late November evening. And in the darkness that lurked in the valleys of the fields outside, it seemed as if now there was nowhere to go. He didn't want to go home. He wanted to stay in the room forever. The bottle of Cully Cuddy was like an hourglass. Hey, Mr. American, she said, an Asian accent edging into her speech. You're Mr. American, that's what you are. She laughed, a loud peal of crazy laughter, like she'd just discovered everything that had ever happened in the world was a joke. Mr. United States of America, big blue eyed son of a bitch. She drank off the bottle, then spit it across the motel room in one big spray, laughing again. He laughed, too, drunkenly watching her face leap from one emotion to another. He could laugh for days, he thought. He wanted to laugh for days, forget all consequences.
0: Do you want to share more why you chose that?
1: well i think uh per your question i remembered uh writing and rewriting this trying to get just the right balance of details and mood especially in that first paragraph and i do think that i wanted to get uh this odd biblical rhythm in the sentences uh that kind of came through i think most pronounced in in the darkness that lurked in the valleys of the fields outside like he is finding himself in this this dark pocket of the world where he also strangely finds comfort the comfort of sin actually and then i wanted to contrast that like she comes in and she does come in with this this interesting um this force this kind of crazy force this, this disruptive force and she's uh yeah she's She's, um, she's just a very different energy than him. And, and I guess like there's, there's a, a challenge of contrasting those, those two energies in this one little moment. And I did think actually when I was writing this, um, I had one hotel in mind in my small town. And it is this very ragged hotel at the edge of town. There aren't many places to go hide in a small town. And so I was trying to, you know, kind of capture that particular place.
0: Where do you write?
1: I write, I have a history of back problems, so I now write in a recliner in my living room. I can only write in recliners. And uh, my dog comes out with me every morning and sits on my lap, and I perch my computer on my dog. So he's both a lap dog and a a lap desk and a writing companion.
0: What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: One of the gifts of this pandemic for me has been driving, driving. So I felt so claustrophobic and hemmed in that I one day I just started driving my car and listening to music. And uh, I found that to be like a wonderful joy. So sometimes I'll just get in and drive for an hour or two aimlessly just listening to music.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: Yeah, I've uh, strangely never been a big believer in feedback. I don't like to have other people's voices in my head uh, especially while i'm developing something or are writing the first drafts i've very recently uh, broken that tradition and I'm, I'm part of a small writing group and this is like a, a writing group specifically for flash fiction with my uh fellow 100 word story colleague lynn mundell and thaisa frank and then this novel about gerard and celeste that i wrote i recently had the the writer kim mcgowan read it so i occasionally get feedback but only later.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: Strange affection for rejection. Let's put it that way. I mean, it's horrible. I hate it. Uh, I love not being rejected, rejected, but I think the way we react to rejection, especially as writers, defines who we are. And I think now when I, when I, when I receive a rejection, it puts a wonderful creative pressure on my work. I have to ask, you know, what's not working or what can work better. And sometimes I have to question the value of the piece itself, like how dedicated I am I into putting more work into it. So now I see rejection as just part of the creative process and, 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 and a crucial part because it generally takes me deeper into the story and deeper into myself.
0: What is your favorite word?
1: In French, it's, Pomplamousse, just because pomplamoose is just so fun to say. It actually means grapefruit, but it doesn't matter to me. It's just a good word. Mm-hmm. Uh, in English, I think it's desuetude, which which means a state of disuse. And I love it because it's it's got a poetic sound to it, and I find poetry in things that have been abandoned or fallen into a state of disuse. Um, so I kind of view myself as a, a rag picker at heart, uh, home in flea markets and junkyards.
0: Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thank you, Mitzi. This was a pleasure. And thank you for your wonderful readings of my stories. I loved hearing you talk about them.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of First Draft with my guest, Grant Faulkner, author of the short story collection, All the Comfort Sin Can Provide. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Teddy Wayne, author of the novel, Loner. We talked about crafting deep interiority, transactionality, and privilege. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 315 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com or wherever you get your podcast fix. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft, A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Please write me. I love hearing from you. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Richard Powers, Annie Murphy-Paul, and Alice McDermott. I want to send out a huge thank you again to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing, a reality, every week. And that is the truth. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey, I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you so much for listening.